Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. I am super honored to be with you this morning. You may wonder why we never let people know if we're going to trade off or if somebody else is preaching. I'll tell you a story. When I was uh, on staff at Living Hope Baptist here in town, we had one of the finest preachers you'll ever hear in your life. In fact, when he left, he got a call from a little church called Saddleback in California. runs about 25,000 people. pastor heard him one time and wanted him to come be a teaching pastor there. So I was the secondary teaching pastor. When Brad was out, I was up. Well, I would always get into church very, very early to make sure things were in place for all that was going on. And it was interesting that when Brad was out, I would oftentimes hear the phone ring in the office and I'd run and grab the phone. And the conversation oftentimes, and really oftentimes, went something like this. Hello, Living Hope Baptist Church, how can I help you? And the question that came next was, is Brother Brad preaching or that other guy? <laughs> and I would never tell them who I was, but sometimes they'd say, well, if Brad's out of town, I probably won't be coming. So we didn't want to tell you I was coming unless you not show up. So I am super grateful that you're here, even though you're here in false pretense. It's just great to have you. I have loved your worship this morning. Um, is it wonderful to come into the presence of our God with brothers and sisters? It is, yes, it is. Is it an outrageously exciting and extraordinary experience to come into the presence of God? Because where two or three are gathered, what? He is there in our midst, right? So he is here today. He is the primary personality in all of our conversations. If you attended East Campus, you'd quite often hear me do this. I always want us to remember, remember who the hero of the story is. And who is the hero of the story? Jesus is. I want to rehearse that with you. I'm going to say, who's the hero of the story? Then you respond as though you really care about him. Ready? Who's the hero of the story? Jesus. Let's say it again. Who's the hero of the story? Jesus. Yes, please. I think many a church has gotten confused about who the hero of the story is. They talk about their music or they talk about their pastor or they talk about their building or they talk about their children's ministry. And I want to tell you something. While all of those things are vitally important to a church, there's only one name that stands above all the others. And his name is Jesus. And when we can give him the glory and the honor, everything else begins to fall in place if we walk with him. Isn't that true? This morning, you all, I want to talk to you about um, the church. I think I've created some confusion, which I'm very capable of doing. My wife tells me often, Rick, I'm not sure what you're saying. And then she says, sometimes a whole church doesn't know what you're saying. And so I'm reminded sometimes I need to clear th some things up. Um, I'm sure Ben and Will have been speaking to you guys about this August 18 event, right? You've been hearing about August 18th, that you'll be coming over to the East Campus for services. By the way, you may be wondering why you're coming to the East Campus. You're coming to the East Campus because of seating. That's why. Uh, we could have done it any place, but that was the greatest amount of seating. But let me share with you what happened in my heart. As your interim pastor, um, I asked the group when I came on board, do you want me to lead this church or preach on Sundays? They said, I want you to lead this church while you're with us. One of the things that we do as church leaders is this. We ask God, what do you want for this church in this era? Lord, what do you want to say to this church during this time? And sometimes God says, I want to do something far beyond your time possibly there. I want you to prepare this church for something that may live far beyond you, may live far beyond you people that are in this room. When I was preparing to preach uh, for the patriotic service on June the 30th, I obviously went to a passage that is often used in a situation like that, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. 
And you know what that passage says, that we need to bow humbly before God, ask Him to forgive us of our sins, and be healed, and our land will be healed. Well, I believe that our land needed healing. Would you agree with me that the United States is in a pretty sick shape right now? Let me say that differently. It's in a pretty sin-sick shape right now. What's right is wrong, and what's right is wrong. What's right is wrong, and what's wrong is right. People are willing to consider sinful things as to be given credence and opportunity and actually laws made to bless things that God specifically states are sin. We're in an interesting place right now. And I was preparing and praying, and the Lord simply whispered to me, I want you to begin preparing Eastwood Baptist Church for revival. For the church to begin praying for and preparing for revival. I want to say something again. That doesn't mean that we're going to see something happen in our lifetimes. It may happen in a week. It may happen in years. I don't know. I just know that I'm being obedient to God by calling Eastwood Baptist Church to prepare for revival and to pray for revival. In my conversation with God, I understood very vividly that the preparation was was as important as the praying. If we go to Scripture, we find that oftentimes a community of believers would consecrate themselves before God when seeking God's blessing. That is, they might have faded from what the reality of what they were meant to be was. They might have gotten into sinful places they shouldn't have been in. they They find themselves as a community of people doing the deal, but the deal not being done as Jesus wanted it being done. And so I asked God, what should we do at that point? And he said, consecrate the people. Now, the beauty of that is this. A dear friend of mine named Claude King, as some of y'all will know Claude, you're going, I know that name. Some of y'all may know Claude because Claude co-wrote a Bible study that's probably the most sought-after and utilized Bible study in history called Experiencing God. Claude wrote an eight-day piece that we'll be utilizing in our preparation for revival. It's called Consecrate the People. You will each receive a little guidebook, and daily you'll utilize that in your devotion and prayer time. And you'll be actually preparing your heart, cleansing your person so that when God chooses to bring revival, we are cleansed in such a way that he can bring revival. Does that make sense to you? This is what God told me that we should be about. And so those eight days will be those eight days. Now, please hear this. We'll also be asking you to fast and pray during those times. What we're not doing, and this is where I think I've caused great confusion. When I mentioned revival, everybody went, oh, my gosh, we're going to have revival services. We're not. We're not going to have a series of eight revival services. Something much more important that that is going to take place, and we're all going to work on our own hearts. That's what we're doing for eight days leading up to Claude showing up on August the 18th. I'm going to ask each of you to be deeply engaged in this. I get to the end of my sermon, you'll understand why. I'm going to state the fact now, then I'll reiterate it through Scripture in just a few minutes, and that is this. Every individual person within a church affects deeply the way that God relates to a church. Every person within the context of a church has a great effect on how God blesses a church. So all of us being engaged is going to be very important. Let me pray and we'll climb into our teaching this morning. Father, thank you for being God. And I thank you that I am not, that these folks are not, that any person on planet Earth is not because... Your love and mercy goes so far beyond who we could be. Or maybe sometimes who we think we are. Father, please put in our hearts a longing to make Eastwood Baptist Church a place where revival is to come. 
May it be that we move beyond our passive natures to our passionate natures to make you the centerpiece of all of life and the centerpiece of all church. In your name, amen. Sometimes um, churches can get confused about who they are. In fact, they can try to be something they're not. I'm going to read a little funny by a guy named Charles Lowry. He's a Christian comedian and Christian psychiatrist. It goes something like this. He says, I can be anything I want to be. He's talking about a cantaloupe. You'll catch on in a minute. He said, take a cantaloupe. Cantaloupe seed goes into the ground. What's it going to be? Going to be a cantaloupe. Watermelon seed goes into the ground. What's it going to be? Going to be a watermelon. That cantaloupe can say this. This is America. I don't want to be a cantaloupe. I want to be a watermelon. I can be anything I want to be. I'm going to be a watermelon. That cantaloupe seed can get some of those Robert Schuler tapes and play those over again. Possibility watermelon. Possibility watermelon. Possibility watermelon. It can get some of those Zig Ziglar tapes. Positively watermelon. Positively watermelon. Positively watermelon. Get some of those Rick Warren tapes. Purpose-driven watermelon. Purpose-driven watermelon. Purpose-driven watermelon. Get some of those Joel Olstein tapes. Highly anointed, favored, blessed watermelon. Highly anointed, favored, blessed watermelon. Get some of those Stephen Covey tapes. Learn the seven highly effective habits of watermelon. Seven highly effective habits of watermelon. Get some of those subliminal, subterrestrial tapes and play watermelon thoughts to that cantaloupe as it sleeps at night. Watermelon thoughts, watermelon thoughts, watermelon thoughts. Go to some new age hotbed. Let them drum up some 400-year-old new age guru. Let him sit bow-legged, naked, hold a crystal and hum, hum watermelon. Hum watermelon thoughts. Hum watermelon thoughts. Go to a Tony Robbins seminar and walk on fire proving you're worthy of being a watermelon. Go to a psychiatrist to find out about your inner self. Maybe your inner self was a watermelon all the time. You can do all that. When the cantaloupe seed comes out of the ground, what's it going to be? Going to be a cantaloupe. Going to be a sorry, no good, dysfunctional cantaloupe after all you've done to it. But it's going to be a cantaloupe. Why? Because that's what God made it to be. It's going to be a cantaloupe. I want to say to you that I'm afraid at times that the Christian church today has become something so different than what was intended. That we were made to be something and we're striving to be something else. That the Christian church today could be so much more if it would just choose to go back to its roots. What does the church as it was designed to be look like is the question I want to ask you this morning. What was the church as it was designed to be look like? I think the book of Acts shows us. Many people look at the book of Acts and they will, in fact, you, if you looked at your Bible right now, you looked at the first page of the book of Acts and probably say Acts of the Apostles. A really much better differentiator would be Acts of the Holy Spirit is what it would be. Because Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and when the Holy Spirit came is when we were endued with power beyond our own power as the church. Let me kind of do a rundown for you here. A little background, Jesus promised his disciples again and again that when he was no longer with them, he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them. But listen closely, not just with them, but in them. Here's what he said specifically in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and listen closely, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I want you to take note. 
Jesus didn't say the Holy Spirit would just be with them. He said that he would be in them. When you receive Jesus Christ in your life as your personal Savior, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. Before Jesus' ascension into heaven, he made the promise that there would be power because of the Holy Spirit in you. He said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Please grasp with me, church, this morning. That if we are believers, that the Holy Spirit indwelling gives us a power, and you're going to hear more about that in a few minutes, beyond what is normal, beyond what people who do not have Christ have available to them. There is a power far beyond that. Jesus gave us the power to do extraordinary and miraculous things. Now, don't lose me now. No miracle comes through you. It comes through Jesus Christ. So as we talk, hang with me. Here's what scripture says. After 40 days in the wilderness, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He returned in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the power through which Jesus himself did his work. In fact, we find in Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. That is, to, through the proclamation of the gospel, save people from hell. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, that is forgiveness of sins. Recovering of sight to the blind, that's physical and spiritual healing. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, healing the sick, casting out demons, forgiving sins, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Listen, the same person in power that was in Jesus, Jesus' disciples also received that. Ask yourself a question this morning. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because if you are, the next passage I'm going to read is going to be profound for you and perhaps something you need to pray over for quite a long time. Because here's what Jesus said to his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also, listen closely, this is his disciples who had walked with him for quite some time and seen all he had accomplished and will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father... Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son for the glory of Jesus Christ. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, before you get confused, you're thinking, oh my gosh, where did this guy get this teaching? I actually, if you're wise and you're a good teacher, especially when something seems a little strange to a denominational group, and I'm a Baptist guy, I work for the best Kentucky Baptist Convention, you go to multiple commentaries and double check what you're about to say. I went to a very conservative commentary. Actually, the notes in the ESV study Bible. Here's what was written by the commentator. In John's gospel, the term works, both in singular and plural, is a broader term than signs. While signs in John are characteristically miracles that attest to Jesus' identity as Messiah and Son of God and that lead unbelievers to faith, Jesus' works include both his miracles and his activities and teachings, including the whole of his ministry. These are all manifestations of the activity of God the Father. For Jesus said, the Father who dwells in me does his works. Here Jesus is teaching his disciples to imitate the things he did in his life and ministry. The disciples' greater works will be possible because Jesus is going to the Father, subsequent to his finished work on the cross. This indicates that the greater works will be possible because of the power of the Holy Spirit who would be sent after Jesus goes to the Father. And let me throw the pause button on for just a minute. I'm afraid that some of you are getting really concerned that I'm suggesting that you become this crazy, wild, charismatic church 
and that weird things are happening amongst you and people are doing strange things and all that kind of thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this, that as Jesus lived his life, we are to believe that he's still capable of doing the same things in our era today. Let me ask you all a question. Raise your hand if, I'm going to give you a one, two, three, go, okay? I want you to raise your hand in just a moment if you have seen God do something in your life or someone else's life, save them from death. If they were in a, had an illness that the doctor said there's no hope. They were in a wreck. The car was completely crushed. Nothing happened to them. Those kinds of things. Something could only be miraculous God at work. Raise your hand right now. I want you to look around this room. Is God still doing his job? Is God still capable of doing more than we imagine? He meant for it to happen in his church and through his church. That's what I'm preaching to you this morning. He meant for this to happen in and through his church. Let me, if I were to say to you, as I said earlier, if I were to repeat myself and say that Acts tells us what the church should have looked like then and what the church should look like today, I want to give you a pretty long list of things we see taking place in Acts through the church. You may want to jot some of these down. I know I didn't give any notes this morning. I'm not big on notes. Here's what I'd suggest to you about taking notes. I do like to give outlines sometimes, but for the most part, I'd rather you do this. When the Holy Spirit whispers to you about something in a sermon, write that down. Somebody once asked me, Rick, um, what is your preaching style? I said, I don't know. I just preach. Someone then asked me, well, can you take it a little further? And I said, well, I'll try. Some people preach for education. My goal is to preach for transformation. Now, don't get me wrong, they go hand in hand. You'll be educated some this morning, but my goal is for you to think about living life differently if you're not living life in a way that is glorifying to God and that brings you joy and happiness and understanding of God's life and what he longs for you and for you to grow in Christ. Because listen, it's as we do the word that we grow in Christ, not just know the word. Let me say that again. It's in doing the word that we truly grow in Christ, not just knowing the word. Many a scholar has been spiritually immature. This morning I'm praying that you'll stretch yourselves a little and go with me. As we talk about what the early church did, let me run through a quick list for you. First of all, Acts 1 tells us that they were devoted to prayer. In fact, there were 120 in an upper room praying and that's when Pentecost came. They weren't praying passive prayers, once in a while prayers. They weren't praying prayers of, oh my goodness, I wish you'd give me a new car. They were praying for God to do outrageous things, extravagant things, extraordinary things. And because the Holy Spirit came, they were filled with the Spirit, and there were accompanying signs that proved that they received the Holy Spirit. What we find in the passage is this. They began to speak in other languages. Uh, the, the city was full of folks from all over the world, and they began to speak in languages they had never learned before. The Holy Spirit in them gave them that ability. Something that we can all think about, I mean, a real great reality is that they, listen closely, they prioritized the spiritual. Let me say that again. They prioritized the spiritual. After these 3,000 people come to Christ, after, because Peter preached through the power of the Holy Spirit, we find that 3,000 people come to Christ. And the next thing we read is that they devoted themselves to, that is, they gave highest priority to not making a living, not getting to the lake on Sunday afternoon, not playing golf, and not making sure they got to see the voice when it was on its last show. They prioritized, the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what they devoted themselves to. So the spiritual matters became number one in their lives. They exercised their faith in the power of God. We find Peter and John. There's a beggar lame from birth. It's one of my favorite things I ever hear somebody say in Scripture. 
He asks for money. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Is that powerful or what? They believed that God could do what only God could do and acted upon it. They publicly shared the gospel. In fact, they courageously proclaimed the gospel in public settings. Peter telling the Jews that they turned Jesus over to the authorities to be crucified and that Jesus calls them to repentance so that their sins can be blotted out. He didn't hesitate knowing it could even cause him great harm to tell them, hey, you're wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. And then telling those who tried to silence them, oh no. You see, they'd done this teaching, been taken before the Sanhedrin. Their lives had been at stake. When they're told not to teach in this name of Jesus anymore, this is their response. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You know, I've often asked myself a question. What if every Christian in the United States of America said, I will not remain silent about my Jesus? What if every government worker and every soldier and every teacher and every office worker said, no, I will not hide in a hole. I would rather lose my job than bend a knee to society because I love Jesus. I've often wondered how different our country might be. They prayed for boldness when they didn't feel as though they could witness because of they, were, they were fearful of witnessing and sharing the name of Christ. They prayed for boldness. And the list goes on and on and on and on, including being beaten and murdered because they would not remain silent about Jesus. That's the early church. They were seeing the miraculous happen on an ongoing basis. Spiritual healing, emotional healing. Oh, we watch the New Testament church and we ask ourselves, is that what we look like today? Is that what we're experiencing in our churches today? Is that what we're really about in our churches today? Jesus wants to make that possible. It will come at the point of revival. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in his book, Unspeakable Joy, we see the Christian church in, more, in a more or less parlous condition, ineffective in a world of sin and shame, a world which is increasingly manifesting in a horrifying manner, godlessness and hatred and antagonism to God. There is only one hope for such a world, and that is a revived church. He goes on to define revival. The best way of defining revival is to say that it is the church returning to the book of Acts. That it is a kind of repetition of Pentecost. It is the Spirit being poured out again upon the church. And it is for this reason that I believe the Holy Spirit whispered to me, Consecrate Eastwood Baptist Church in my name and begin praying for revival. My brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Would it be exciting to you if Eastwood Baptist Church was the catalyst for revival in Bowling Green and Warren County and the state of Kentucky and the nation? Would that be exciting to you? Because let me tell you what this world needs. I work with churches for 20 years now as a church consultant. I'm shocked that God gave me this message to bring Eastwood Baptist Church as an interim pastor. What we need to see in our churches today is a church to model what we're talking about. To see the Holy Spirit do things in such a fashion that the world has to rear their ugly heads and say, wait a minute, that can't be explained because they're doing more than just having children's programs and going on trips and 
enjoying worship on Sunday and reading the Bible every day. Something is happening there that could only be the power of a force that is beyond comprehension. And we know the power of that force is Jesus Christ. That's what we know to be true. And so we're going to be working on consecrating Eastwood Baptist Church in these eight days I'm speaking of. I want to give you a little biblical background for that. We find uh, Joel. Uh, it's interesting in the book of Joel. Uh, give you a little background of what's taking place here. The prophet told of the devastation coming because of their sin. The land will be laid waste, crops will wither, land is to be destroyed because the people have turned from God. I would say to you that's a real good symbol of what we're experiencing, and that is the power of God has been laid to waste because either our sin, our apathy, or our misunderstanding. Joel writes these words, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. That's precisely what we're about to do. Consecrate fasting and prayer and focusing on God specifically and then calling a solemn assembly. I would ask you this question because he points it out here. A group of people who truly long to see God at work and realize that perhaps they become apathetic or sinful. You see three things that take place in the lives of these people. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. Why is it that we don't find ourselves totally overcome by the lack of power in our church? I have an opinion. Opinions are worth nearly nothing. I would say it's because we don't have broken hearts, we have divided hearts. We don't have broken hearts, we have divided hearts. This passage says that with all of their hearts, many of us have a heart for God, but we also have a heart for the world. Would that be true? We love God as long as it doesn't get in the way of the things we enjoy. We serve God as long as it doesn't get in the way of things that we love doing even more than knowing God. If you were to talk to the average pastor today, and I would talk to pastors every week, you'd say, what could make your church come alive? And oftentimes they'll say a phrase like, if we all cared more about the faith than we do about everything else. Now, please don't hear me beating up on you. Tell you what's tough for us in our world today. We live in a culture where church is cultural, not sacrificial. We're what some people call cultural Christians. And that's why we're consecrating ourselves, because many of us struggle here. Not everyone in this room probably does. I certainly do. The culture we live in, good southern... You ever notice we are a southern Baptist? Good southerners go to church. And they get involved in the programmings of the church. They go to Sunday school and small groups. And, you know, some of us have been deacons and some of us are deacons. And some of us even get stuck with being pastors like myself. And we do our job rather than making our primary responsibility and longing to know Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in a state of longing to be 
an efficient church rather than longing to be a people who love Jesus so deeply that he flows off of our lips as though we're talking about our grandchildren. Our culture says it's okay just to come and be church members rather than to be the body of Christ. Because in the body of Christ, we all have amazing responsibilities to play out and things to do that go beyond making sure our church is efficient. Our minds have been so morally dulled by TV and Facebook and YouTube and everything else that even when we think about sin, we're not sure it is any longer sinful because we've saturated ourselves with media rather than saturating ourselves in the Word of God. And so something more needs to happen within us. What do each of us need to begin praying for right now before we start the consecration process on August 11th? We need to begin praying for, if we don't already have it, is a broken, undivided heart. We need to find ourselves brokenhearted that people aren't being freed from addictions through us. That we aren't seeing people saved and baptized on a daily basis. That we aren't experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit when we meet together to worship Him. That we are more impressed with Jesus than we are the music we sing and the friends we have. We, we need to be brokenhearted so that we don't settle for trips and training and comfortable pews and chairs and meeting budget. When Jesus died and sent the Holy Spirit to be in us so we could see lives transformed and people set free, my brothers and sisters, we need to be praying for broken hearts so that on August the 11th, when we begin to consecrate ourselves, we truly long to be consecrated. I'm uh, 61 years old. It has taken me literally decades to come to the conclusion that my heart needs to long for Jesus more than anything else. And when that settled into my heart through the work of the Holy Spirit, the reality was there's something so much more than you've ever experienced. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor's kid. I'm about as Baptist as you can get, folks. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor's kid, attended a Southern Baptist college, went to, a Southern, to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, went to work for Lifeway, the Southern Baptist Publishing Company. Now I work for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. I'm about as Baptist you can be. And I will tell you, being Baptist doesn't make you an on-fire Christian. We need to ask God to break our hearts so we have a longing for consecration, a longing to do what it takes to see people come to Christ. Some of you are probably asking the question, am I individually truly important in this mission? Is what Eastwood's about to do, is, am I really an important aspect of that? Surprisingly enough, in the book of Joshua, we find that someone's individual decision affected the entire community, believing community. It is a fact that something amazing happened in Scripture. Joshua 6, 18 through 19 says this, God speaking to Joshua before the folks go into battle, to keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. As they take over the city, Jericho, keep yourselves from the things that I tell you. 
Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted, the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Then when they were, took over Jericho, they were not to take these things that were utilized for worship. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. What he's saying to Joshua is this. Tell all of your men who are going to battle when they take what they are getting from winning the battle, do not take these holy things. And there was one man named Achan. He chose not to be engaged in what the rest of the community was to be engaged in, and there was a bad outcome. Joshua 7.1 reads like this, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things... And the anger of the Lord burned against, not him, but against the people of Israel. Did you catch that? When one person chose to break faith, it states that the entire community broke faith. It's very interesting the metaphors that are used for today's church. The one is the body of Christ. If you're a believer, every one of you in this room that are believers, if you're a Christian, every one of you received when you came to Christ the Holy Spirit in you, as I've mentioned, in a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. The scripture unhesitatingly and blatantly states that if you were given a spiritual gift and you're not exercising it, the entire body is affected. If you're a finger and you're not working, you know what happens. If you're the heart and you're not working, if you're a limb and you're not working, Everyone is affected. Someone once said to me, Rick, if what you're saying is true, and we know that statistically about 20% of people in a given church serve in the local church, what does that mean? And I said, well, it probably means that church is dead because if 80% of my body wasn't functioning, I'd probably be dying, don't you think? You see, the body of Christ, every one of us has an effect on the entire body of Christ. Another metaphor that's used for the church is the family of God, that we are a family. Um, I shared with you, I think, that I had a son who struggled with alcohol and drug addiction. I will tell you, when you have a person in the family who is struggling relationally, however, it affects everyone. We shouldn't be surprised this metaphor speaks to this. If some of us choose not to be engaged, it will affect the unity of the entire body. And then the third is the temple of God. The temple of God, we know that Jesus is the cornerstone and each of us is a building block. I'm no builder for sure. I'm the worst there ever was. But I can tell you this. If you take one brick out of the side of my house on the corner at some point, that house is going to start to crumble. Every one of us makes a difference. That's why I'm going to encourage and challenge every one of you to be involved in this eight days of consecration. It is vital to the movement of God in this church. As a reminder, some of y'all may be thinking to yourselves, when I read the Bible, I'm reading about me, that it says the word you a lot. It says the word you a lot. So when you're reading it, you're making it very personal, very personalized. What you don't realize, a Greek scholar would tell you that as you read the New Testament, when you read the word you, at least 70% of the time, it's not talking about an individual person in the church is talking about the church whole because those letters were written to the church whole. 
I want you to understand something desperately. We need to be like the first century Christians. And for the most part, those who were living as they should have in that culture never asked the question, what is best for me when making a decision? They asked the question, what is best for the church? And I will do my best to do what's best for the church, not what's best for me. And I would say this to you as a guy who's journeyed down the very self-sufficient path way too long before realizing the truth I'm sharing with you this morning, that the joy in Christ comes when I set myself wants and wishes aside and live for everyone else in Jesus Christ. That's when life gets right. When I can put that in play. I want to quickly share a story with you about a revival that took place at Asbury College back in the 70s. I want you to realize how important what we're doing is. As I close, I'm going to read specifically Hope I don't bore you, but I don't want to get it wrong. On Tuesday, February 3rd, 1970, in the Hughes Auditorium on the campus of Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, during the college's regular chapel service, which was scheduled to last only 50 minutes, a revival broke out that continued nonstop for 185 hours. What was the spark that ignited that revival? Consecration followed by a solemn assembly. During her sophomore year, 1967 to 68, Janine Brabone began leading a half-hour prayer meeting before each chapel service in the basement of Hughes Auditorium. Other groups were also meeting for prayer around the campus. Janine obtained permission to conduct an all-night prayer meeting, which took place on Friday, August the 3rd, October 3rd, 1969. There were around 150 students present. According to Janine's testimony, the Shekinah glory fell. The prayer meeting continued till 3 a.m. For those of you who don't understand what I'm saying by the Shekinah glory, you may have experienced it sometime and not realized it. The Shekinah glory is when you realize the presence of the Holy Spirit in such a fashion that you realize there's something taking place in your presence that is beyond the natural. We would call it a room full of the Holy Spirit in Baptist life normally but it is so powerful that you realize there's something happening here that is beyond the natural. Following that prayer meeting, Janine and five other students began a 30-day great experiment wherein those six students covenanted with one, one another to spend at least 30 minutes in prayer and in the Bible every morning, writing down what the Lord showed them. The second great experiment was started on January 2nd. Listen closely to the dates was started on January 2nd, 1970. And this one involved 36 students. On the last day of their experiment, Saturday, January 31, those 36 students had the chapel service wherein they shared how God had changed their lives over the course of the previous 30 days. Toward the close of the chapel service, Janine informed the students assembled that there were commitment cards on every chair in the chapel. She invited every student to join with them for another 30-day great experiment and 200 students made that commitment. Three days later, Tuesday, February 3rd, 1970, during the chapel service in Hughes Auditorium, a sacred assembly, the revival broke out. Did you notice it took years of prayer and a sacred assembly for revival to break out? 
I want you to realize something. If you were to go online and YouTube the Asbury Revival, you're going to find this fact out. It didn't happen because of great music. It didn't happen because of great preaching. It didn't happen because of great children's ministry or student ministry or a beautiful building. It happened because people humbled themselves and they prayed. It's interesting in that revival, it also didn't happen because of preaching. Us preachers hate this kind of thing. What we find is that Janine was sitting next to a friend who God had spoken to. She and Janine had a test that morning. Her friend looked at her before the revival broke out and said, we won't be having our test today. The Lord had spoken to this girl that this was going to happen on this particular morning. They looked at the program and saw who was preaching and said to one another, how is God going to do this today? Because the guy that was to preach was a poor preacher. My brothers and sisters, if we want to see revival, we've got to fall on our knees. We've got to not have divided hearts, but broken hearts. We have to begin saying, Lord, I don't want my children to grow up in a country like I'm in today. And the only way this country is going to turn around is not through electing the right guy, it's through making the right guy the only guy. It's going to happen as the church is the church, being the church, longing for the Holy Spirit to do things through the church that only the Holy Spirit can do, and He can only do it through the church because as a passage stated I read earlier, unbelievers can't get it because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. It's going to cause, it's going to cost us not just doing church, but being the church. Oh, 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 o